So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Hello and welcome to this episode of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. We're at episode 13 today and it is quite a season right now in the United States and possibly around the world as we address a lot of challenges in terms of social unrest in this country at this time. Some of it did stem from the COVID-19 pandemic. We started to see this formation of social disparities, health disparities, ethnic disparities among people of color, African-American and Latino, Latinx populations being disproportionately affected by COVID-19. We've heard conversations about disproportionate treatment, access to care, and even those who actually have response from 911 to actually be admitted into the hospital with these health disparities as part of that conversation and trend. So there's been a lot there already. And then that connected with the recent police brutality of women of color and men of color, black men and women. We're talking about so many cases of police brutality. We're talking about Breonna Taylor. We're talking about Ahmaud Arbery. We're talking about Eric Garner. We're talking about George Floyd most recently. All of this combined with the statewide or citywide shutdown. People are anxious. People are upset. People are angry. And the protests have a very clear reason behind them. It's just a really interesting time. And to many people, they think it's awful and that it's the end of the world and that this is terrible. But this is actually nothing new. Much of this is actually just emerging to the surface for conversation. None of this is surprising. This is a wonderful moment for us to be very vocal and able to discuss injustice in this country, health disparities, criminal justice, police brutality, financial, environmental, and all the different social determinants of health 
that disproportionately impact people of color. This is an excellent moment for us to be able to even go on places like LinkedIn, highly reserved professional spaces, and for us to finally be able to say, this is not okay. For us to actually be okay to say that black lives do matter, even in these very formal settings. This is a wonderful moment. This is a great opportunity for so many of us to develop partnerships, develop new systems of care, humanity, social justice, caring for human lives, new systems of support, awareness. There's so much opportunity in this moment that have begun with the emergence of COVID-19. So much of this is connected to health disparities, social determinants of health, all of it. When we talk about the social determinants of health, these also include crime, availability to healthy resources, environment, noise pollution, air pollution, so much more. So with this episode, we're speaking to Sharon Chang. She's in Seattle. She's an activist, artist, photographer, writer, author. She has several creative projects related to social justice in the community. She's going to be talking to us about her projects today, her photography, her writing, her journalism, photojournalism during this time, and how with COVID-19, it has impacted people of color in the Seattle area and elsewhere where there's negative perception against people of color because of wearing the mask. We see that in the black population, wearing a mask that is for safety purposes and is a guideline and in some cases a requirement is perceived negatively where we see as well in the Asian population where the discourse in the media on COVID-19 wherever it is, Italy, Spain, wherever, often has photos of people, Asian people with a mask, associating COVID-19 with Asians in the popular image. So these types of conversations are what we'll be discussing in this episode. I hope you find it informative in terms of what's going on socially and culturally, even in terms of the arts, as we talk about this era of COVID-19. Thank you for listening to this episode of COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno here, and today we are speaking about this theme of health equity and health disparities in the era of COVID-19. Today we're going to speak to Sharon Chang. I've known her for several years now in many contexts of mixed race and racial justice conversations, and today she's going to be sharing her experiences and what she's seen in Seattle. Washington regarding COVID-19. She is a photographer, she's a social justice activist, and she's awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Sharon. Thank you for having me, April. I'm excited. Tell us a little bit more about you and the work that you've been doing in Seattle. So it's a good elevator challenge to try to condense my many projects into one short description. I am, like you said, a Seattle-based photographer, activist, and also writer. And since the pandemic hit the U.S., and I live in King County, so we saw the first documented case here and were the first epicenter, I have started three different projects. I've been kind of working on trying to encapsulate what I'm doing. So I have a new COVID-19 blog on my website, SharonHChang.com. If you go to the top, there's a tab that says COVID-19 that I'm 
now building up to encapsulate all the work I've done over the last couple months, if anyone is interested. But my three projects are, number one, a portrait campaign called COVID-19 Safety Not Stigma. So I've been photographing people of color wearing masks to combat the increased racism we're seeing during this time to raise awareness about the disproportionate impacts of COVID-19 on communities of color and to also encourage mask wearing and safety by the public instead of stigma because we're seeing a lot of stigma when people are going outside in the U.S., which is not helping us all stay safe and healthy. And so I took 17, 18 portraits and I've been rolling them out across social media. I just rolled out the 11th yesterday. The campaign launched on April 7th and it's done really well. I think we probably have over 8,500 engagements with it so far, which is perfect because the whole point was to create an image counter narrative to what we have been seeing and continue to see. I think everyone's pretty familiar with the early news articles in the U.S. that no matter what country they were covering would always show a person of an Asian mask. <laughs> Even if they were covering an outbreak in Italy, it would be a person, an Asian person in a mask. And so, you know, I felt that it was really important to just put some more positive images out there around people of color being safe and practicing recommended safety protocols and being human, like just taking care of themselves. So that's one project. I got a Facebook COVID 2019 journalism grant to provide coverage, local coverage of what's happening in Seattle, specifically South Seattle, where a lot of our communities of color are concentrated as a writer, a journalist, and a photojournalist. So that's the second project that I've been working on. It's also, you can see the articles I've published so far since March 30th was the first one I started putting out. Um, all those contributions are with a local POC-led publication called South Seattle Emerald. And then the last is a, is a photo journal, which is not necessarily intended for any specific body, institution, publication. It's just my perspective on the ground. When I have my camera and I see something, I'll snap it and then, you know, put up a paragraph. It's kind of a microblog about what's going on in Seattle. I think with all the news, it's so dizzying and overwhelming. It can be hard to understand what our actual communities look like during this time, just like an everyday look. So that's just there for people to go through if they're interested to see what woman of color perspective looks like. So those are the three big projects I would say I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, and congratulations on the award that you won for your journalism. Thank you. Yeah, your funding. That's awesome. I'm really excited to hear more about the work you've been doing, the things that you've been seeing in Seattle. And thank you for, again, pointing out the fact that this was the epicenter, the first location in the United States that started to see the growth of this virus. So there's so much that probably heard in the news that you've seen early on. Yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit more about the context of COVID-19? How are things at the moment in Seattle. I think relative to other states at this point, our case count is not as bad as people thought it would be. I'm not going to say it's good because we still have thousands of cases and over 800 deaths. So there's nothing good about that to me. I think that our governor has really tried, I want to give him some credit, to be thoughtful, to listen to scientists, to listen to health experts, and really keep us as healthy and safe as possible. So, you know, we just had our stay-at-home order extended another month. We saw the first spread of coronavirus in the U.S. and are still not fully reopened, while other states who were hit after us are already reopening. So I think that is somewhat encouraging. At the same time, I'm not, I think you're more of a data person than me. 
I think our testing is lacking. I think our governor is the first to admit that. I think all over the country our testing is lacking. And so it's hard to really know what numbers are. Uh, I did a piece that was really difficult on our incarcerated populations in Washington state. Uh -huh. So not just people in jails and prisons, but also immigrants that are being detained in our detention centers. So that's thousands and thousands of people. And the reports I heard from those places is that they can't get tested. They're very rarely getting tested, but there was illness in those places and they just weren't sure what it was. And so that makes me wonder like, uh, do we have enough data? Are we testing the people who can't get access to testing who are really vulnerable? So I still have questions, but it's good to know we're not seeing huge spikes anymore. And I guess we just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Are you seeing in the city, are there the mask policies? So you have to have a covering on your face. Do you have those sorts of things? Are there restrictions on entry into supermarkets? Are businesses open? How much are things close to normal or back to normal? Or how much are things shut down? Okay, so we are not very close to being quote unquote back to normal. Our governor just held a press conference, I think it was Friday, extending our stay at home order, which was supposed to expire on May 4th. So now we're at home until May 31st. He issued a four phase reopening plan that's quite slow. To starting today, there was some very limited restrictions that were being lifted on things like a little bit more construction, you know, essential workers can still be working, but it was pretty conservative. And they're going to wait three weeks between that phase and the next one to make sure our case count doesn't spike again. So really the next phase is not until the 25th. And that's when some retailers can start operating and you know, all that. So it's going to be a while. We're still pretty restricted. I did see an article yesterday that they uh, are experimenting with opening a few of our farmer markets, farmers markets, but it's just a handful and they really control the flow of people in and out of the markets. So there weren't that many shoppers and they had to turn a bunch of people away who were waiting in line because the market closed before they could let everyone in. I'm just starting to see articles about mask requirements for certain stores, mostly big commercial stores like Costco or something like that. But otherwise I wouldn't say that's a widespread practice here. And when I go out, the few times that I do go out, I would say I'd see like 50% of people wearing masks by choice, which is wild to me because I'm Taiwanese American, like in Taiwan's doing one of the best worldwide mask wearing as like part of Taiwanese culture, part of Japanese culture. So maybe in that sense, it was already normalized, but people are wearing masks. We're wearing masks in Taiwan right away. It was like not an issue. <laughs> I was yeah. like, let's do this. It makes sense. Yeah. And the resistance to doing that in the U.S., even from our health officials in the very beginning, like, oh, it doesn't make any difference. We don't mm -hmm. need to do that. And then sort of pivoting and saying, wait a second, it does make a difference. You should do that. But then just everyday residents and citizens are like, well, I don't feel like it. It just, it blows my mind. Like mm -hmm. it's not a hard thing to do and it can make a huge difference for all of us. So I think 50% is kind of low. Mm -hmm. I wish I would see more. That's kind of where we're at right now. Okay. Such a changing environment. <laughs> and there seems to be this lack of acceptance, lack of understanding. There's denial. There's all kinds of stuff that's going on out there. And even the mass conversation, I think there's confusion out there I would say mm -hmm. I, th I think a lot of people don't understand the point of the mask the purpose of the mask right and um what's San Diego like can I ask we just had a face covering restriction we are required when we go out now I think it started Monday what the heck day it is right now mm -hmm. yeah um, it all blurs together now we just have this face mask requirement now anytime you go outside it started today and of course 
some clown out there decided to go out in a KKK hood Mm -hmm. at the supermarket just like either today or yesterday. And that made national news, which was nice, right? So we have that kind of stuff going on. I know that you mentioned early on when the virus was just approaching or that we were actually accepting the fact that it was here in the United States. You mentioned that you went to 99 Ranch and you saw that it was totally empty. Other stores were like beginning the hoarding, beginning the fear-based grocery shopping. The long lines had already begun. The toilet paper was starting to disappear, things like that. I remember seeing a post where you said that you went to 99 Ranch. You're like, nobody's here. Yeah, it was deader than I've ever seen it. It was really shocking. The parking lot is usually completely full and it was a third full maybe. There were barely any lines in the store. It was really surprising and I talked that particular ranch 99 is in like a larger mall so there's a food court and other stores and I went and talked to one of the boba places and the owner there was like it's so scary it's completely dead we have so little business I don't know what's going to happen and then right after that our governor shut down businesses I think about her often (laughs) really a dissonant experience for me as a Taiwanese Chinese American to know at the same time, like this store was suffering and nobody wanted to come there and they had everything. They had all the produce and I don't know about toilet paper, but they had everything. They had rice, everything. But people were uh, lining up around the building and around the block at Costco, like beating down the doors basically to mm-hmm. go shopping. And mm-hmm. part of me was like, why don't you just come here? Mm-hmm. I remember saying that my husband, we needed to go get something. And I was like, oh, I hate to say this, honey, but I know where we can go, where we're not going to have to wait in line. Let's Mm -hmm. go to the Chinese store. But I think getting there and like seeing the actual impact felt really not good at all. And I remember like, I think a couple days after that, I said, you know what? I have the same idea. I think I want to go to to that store too. And the thing is, I got there and they weren't open yet. So I was like, darn. So I ended up at the Sprouts and it was super crowded and everyone was starting to panic and it was so unpleasant. I wish they had been open. It was just too early in the day. (laughs) But also we have a small area here. We have a convoy district, the very small street of the Asian restaurants and foods and things. And they were starting to see earlier on the losses of business, the stigma, the things that they were beginning to experience that other businesses weren't suffering from at the oh. beginning. Yeah, we saw that here too. That Ranch 99 was not in Seattle, it was just south of us in, I think it's in like the Tukwila area, but our Chinatown in Seattle was hit really early, mm-hmm. even before we started to see spread. Mm-hmm. I think maybe even before we saw our first case in King County, they were already getting hit by stigma because of the news from China. Mm-hmm. And so I've photographed quite a few on the ground grassroots efforts by local Asian American and Pacific Islanders trying to support our Chinatown from the very, very start. It began with things like going out in small groups to eat at the restaurants to just try to bring them some business. And then when our stay at home order was issued, then it became like support them with takeout. And so there's some really cool on the ground efforts being done by community that doesn't usually make national news. But I've been I've been watching and our Chinatown is still really slowly trying to reopen for takeout. There's been a lot of vandalizing, break-ins, some theft. Hard to say if it's racially motivated. We guess that sometimes it is. We're not sure. But we did have a white supremacist group come into the area and sticker all over our Chinatown. Um, Yeah, it's not fun. From your photography projects, from people that you know, have you heard some examples of experiences of stigma of harassment related to looking 
Chinese, being Asian American, and this perception that somehow we are responsible for this virus. Oh, absolutely. And I'm photographing both Asian and African Americans because right when I conceived of the portrait project, I pretty quickly saw that Black folks were also experiencing stigma for wearing face coverings. It's a different mm -hmm. racial stigma, but it's all part of the same white supremacist system. For Asian folks, yeah, definitely. A lot of the people I photographed were telling me about maybe some experiences they had had in public or that they knew friends and family were having. One person I photographed, a woman said, we were in Chinatown, that she felt comfortable wearing her mask there, but every time she was leaving that neighborhood, people were giving her dirty looks. So yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And then for African-American folks, there's this kind of, you know, there's this constant perception of Black folks being a threat, even outside this pandemic because of racist stereotypes. Now with face coverings, especially for Black men, that perception of threat is increasing. And so there's been lots of documented cases of Black people facing aggression for covering their faces like they're supposed to to stay safe. And certainly some of the Black folks that I photographed had family members that were dealing with that or they had dealt with it themselves. A lot of stories it's hard for us to get a tally of what that looks like. I think that's one thing I'm hearing. I'm also involved in an anti-hate committee here in Seattle. And there's a sense of like wanting to show the nation or communities what the scope of that hatred looks like. But it's really hard to capture it in numbers. People don't necessarily want to report it or it's a story they'll tell to a friend or a trusted peer, but they don't want to necessarily share it with a reporting agency, um, with even media. So I think the real scope of what that looks like is much larger than we're probably seeing in the news. And then in terms of health outcomes, have you heard some stories in the news, disparities in care, access to treatment, access to testing and diagnosis? Are you seeing those trends? We know that we've seen the data that among the African-American population that we're seeing a lot more deaths as a result of the virus. We're seeing a lot more infections in Native American populations, at least some with New Mexico. What have you seen in Seattle in terms of health care and access to treatment? And We have the same racial disparities that the entire nation is suffering from because the entire country has been racist for hundreds of years. You know, in King County specifically, the struggle is that they were not collecting racial data uh -huh. in the beginning. And there was there's some critique of that now, like, why weren't you doing that? And so we have incomplete data, but what we do have preliminarily is showing that our Latinx and our biggest, Lat definitely Latinx for sure, and then maybe uh, indigenous and or Pacific Islander, Pacific Islander is indigenous, but um, populations have been extraordinarily hard hit, disproportionately hard hit. But a lot of people are questioning why Black folks have been disproportionately hit too, but it doesn't look the same as the rest of the nation. And people are wondering if that's because of inaccurate data collection. So we're still trying to get a full picture. This is all to say we're still trying to get a full picture of our racial disparities, uh -huh. but they're not good. All the things it's like people not having access to the health care they need, people not being able to get a test when they need one, uh -huh. you know, people already having pre-existing conditions because of discrimination and prejudice. So it's real here too. Like I talked about covering our incarcerated populations 
which are disproportionately black and brown also, we don't know the extent of infections there because they haven't been testing. So there's some questions about that, but they're very vulnerable. We also have the third largest unhoused population in the United States. And there are questions about, which is also disproportionately black and brown. Uh, and there are questions there about, are those folks getting tested adequately? Are they getting what they need? So I think we are seeing those disparities play out across a lot of different populations here. And we're probably gonna see in the future more documentation of what that actually looks like. And then in terms of documentation with the Asian American or Asian population, have you seen, has there been an increase of um, breaking down the data? You know, we've had this issue of summarizing all of this data and saying all Asian Americans or all Asians are this way. Have you been part of that movement or part of those conversations in terms of progress? I haven't seen our data disaggregated. Oh, sorry, I'm checking it right now. I would like to confirm that so far, our most coronavirus impacted population are uh, Latinx and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander, and then Black. In the data I've seen so far, like I'm looking at this data in the Seattle Times, I just see Asian. I don't know if anyone's disaggregating yet. Yeah. Um, haven't seen it here. Can you tell us some of the stories that you've seen or that you've documented in your photography in terms of COVID-19, some more examples of the stories that you've heard. Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to the piece on our incarcerated population, I've been focusing a lot also on artists and just trying to help share the stories of artists who are bringing us resilience, even though they're struggling during this time. There's been a lot of call outs in Seattle for help from creatives. And I'm grateful to be one of the people who's helping, but um, so I'm really trying to lift up a lot of stories of artists, of particularly artists of color and what they're doing. The first piece that I published with the South Seattle Emerald around COVID-19 was a piece on artists and I interviewed, did I interview five artists of color across disciplines about what they were up to. And artists were some, in terms of like economically, artists here were some of the first and worst hit. Just their their contract workers, they're, they do gigs, they do freelance, and all of that stuff evaporated like instantly. That was before we were seeing some of the layoffs and the furloughs that we're seeing now. And so they were pretty devastated. A lot of them were at home wondering what the future was going to look like, but they were still coming up with really cool things like live streaming performances from home or offering movement classes online or webinars, just creating visual art to encourage people to have hope, lots of that kind of stuff. That was super cool. And I have gone down to our Chinatown a few times, as I mentioned, to try to photograph what I can. And there's a lot of food relief efforts happening down there that are super cool. And that's really true all over the city at this point. Um, but a lot of restaurants donating food to frontline workers, healthcare workers. There are, outside of the International District, our Chinatown, there are some South End restaurants led by people of color that have transformed their restaurants into community kitchens to help provide food relief to food insecure folks. That's been really cool. Yeah, and then a lot of mask making efforts I've mm -hmm. seen in the South End too. Right now there's a big campaign to try to sew 9,000 masks for our Chinatown and there's a lot of people working on that. But also a lot of grassroots efforts to provide masks to healthcare workers and other folks who need them. Can you tell us 
what you think could be improved? I know there's like so much that could be improved. <laughs> I'm Taiwanese American. My dad is an immigrant and he goes back and forth between Taiwan all the time. So when we saw our first cases here in King County, he was still in Taiwan at the time. And he was relaying to me all the things that Taiwan was doing in advance of the first cases we saw in King County. So I already had a sense and they were successful, right? Taiwan was having success in handling and keeping coronavirus under control in their country. So I already knew what would work. It's been so disappointing to see the way the United States has handled this because we have a model for what works. We had a model well in advance for what works. <laughs> and there's a lot of ways we just didn't do that. We're inconsistent state mm -hmm. by state. I think mm -hmm. that's an issue. I have oh, concerns. It's a hot mess, yeah. Yeah, it's, I have concerns for the future as people are still traveling around the country or driving or taking airplanes to visit family. How can we guarantee that we're not going to continue the spread or, or bring a spike in cases again when a person is traveling from one state that's already reopened to one that's trying to be more careful. We can't. The resistance by a lot of folks in the U.S. to being locked down or being in quarantine. Here in Washington, I think this is happening all over the country, though. We've had some big protests by people who don't agree with our governor. So there was like a protest in Olympia, our state capital, where around 2,000 people came out to protest our stay-at-home order and they did not wear masks and they did not practice safe social distancing. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if other countries are having that issue. <laughs> so I would really like to see us all on the same page. Mm -hmm. I'd see like, how can we beat this and get it under control if we're not all on the same page? So mm -hmm. that's what I wish would improve. Have cases begun to decrease? You mentioned at first they were increasing. Are we seeing that other side of this first phase of whatever we're talking about here? It feels that it's very different by state by state. I wouldn't be an expert on other states. In Washington, it appears that we might be flattening our curve. So mm -hmm. that's why they're considering reopening. I appreciate that our officials are like, we'll try it. <laughs> but if the case count goes up, we're going to get conservative again. So far, it appears we may be flattening, but we're still having new cases every day. I think mm -hmm. the last numbers like yesterday were 366 new cases in, um, was it just King? It was in our state, which is still too many. And we're still having new deaths every day. So until we can get the new cases down to zero, I mean, we're not spiking in Washington, not the way that it seemed like we might in the beginning. So they even, you know, the military came here and set up like a huge emergency hospital in one of our stadiums downtown and we didn't end up using it which was oh, good news that's good. Um, okay. but yeah we, we're not over we're not over the whole thing yet tell us how you're doing and how you practice self-care during this time I'm grateful that I have a place to live and I have food to eat and that I'm healthy as far as I know with my family I have a husband a partner and a 10 year old and we've gotten to be together. I, I think a lot about what it would feel like to live alone during this time. I haven't had to do that. That would be a particular challenge. So being with my family has been grounding, having the privilege of knowing that I have a place to live and I have food to eat. And financially, we're okay for maybe a couple months more is helpful too. And then I would say in terms of self-care, I've been trying to take a lot of walks some days are easier than others. <laughs> I try to drink a lot of water, which I really think people underestimate the power of water. Like whether you're swimming in it, taking a shower, taking a bath, drinking water. So uh, just a couple of days ago, I was like, I need to drink more water. And it really made a big difference. We have pets. Spending time with animals, they say, is one of the keys to resiliency. So I'm trying to spend a lot of time with them. And a lot of the creative work I do is my healing work too. Mm -hmm. So 
photography in particular and visual storytelling is a really cathartic practice for me. So I'm lucky to get to do that work as my work. What would you like the world to know at this time? That is such a hard question. (laughs) Everybody is like living such different circumstances. So I definitely don't want to try to presume to give advice to people when I don't know what their situation is. But as a Taiwanese American, I just need to reiterate, I wish the world would uplift what Taiwan has done. Mm-hmm. It really is remarkable. And, you know, Taiwan did it alone. We are not recognized by most of the world as a nation. Only, I think, 15 countries recognize Taiwan. And so Taiwan had to do this by themselves. They're not even allowed to be part of the World Health Organization. So we know what works. We have a model for what works. And I, I wish people would look to that more so that we could all work together. And how can we find your website, your information, your blog, your photography? Yeah, I'd say the best place is SharonHChang.com. So my COVID-19 blog is there. You can navigate to it through the menu, main menu, and then also links to my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm less active on Twitter, most active on Facebook and Instagram, and you can definitely see the portrait campaign in those places. Thank you so much, Sharon, for being here today. I look forward to your great work and see more of it in terms of COVID, photography, all your activist work. Keep shining your light and changing the world from your own corner of the world. Thank you. That means a lot to me, actually. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, any burning questions about COVID-19, feel free to send me a message in Anchor anchor.fm slash COVID19PPC is our website. And until next time, stay well and take good care out there.